This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book, number six of the series on the being and nature of God. It is our custom at this meeting to read together portions of the scriptures. And those of you who are joining in this tape recording ministry, if you care to switch off for a little while and read with us three short psalms, Psalm 46, 47 and 48. At the close of the meeting we held in this chapel and was dealing with this great subject, the being and the nature of God, I made a promise that the next time that we, the next time that we um, held a meeting here, I would try to deal with the subject of the one Lord, both in the Old Testament and in New. But I'm going to break my word. And the reason is uh, that I had a fortnight's sickness and although it may sound very easy to stand up here and discourse upon such a small subject as the being and nature of God, believe me friends, with a mechanical device going whizzing round in the little back room and no minute to stop and think or to stand and stare, it needs physical and mental ability as well as spiritual grace. So I thought I would be wise. And because of the possibility of some saying away, as, as we see, by reason of the foggy nature of the atmosphere, difficulties of travelling, I'm taking a rather simpler line this evening. I hope it will be of service. Every time we open the book and let it speak to us, we surely should get some message that will help us. And as time goes on, I hope to be able to be back again and even better than before. Thank you for your prayers. I thank you for all those who've stepped into the breach and kept the witness going. And now, once more, I won't say unto the breach, dear friends, because we're thankful that the breach has in measure been healed. So those of you who are listening in the distant parts of the earth, you're sharing with the folks of the chapel that we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of ourselves. At the end of the psalm we were reading just now, the psalmist summed it up like this. This God is our God. Friends, that's what you must say too. You must not rest satisfied until you can say, when you've read the scriptures, this God is our God. You see, so many of us have a tendency to let somebody else battle it all out in the days gone by. And after the ding-dong is all over, we have a creed constructed for us so they can stand up in church and say, I believe this, that and the other. Amen. Well, that isn't what the Bible does. There is no systematic theology in the Scriptures. One professor said the Bible couldn't be true because God would never have written it like this. He would have started off, God, giving a definition of that. See, definition of that. All you've got to do is look up a dictionary. But this book isn't a dictionary. It's truth walking and living. It's a biography of Abraham to tell you justification by faith. Living things, you see. God doesn't work like that. So it's a book you're never done with. I don't suppose you ponder and read night after night, night after night the dictionary. 
Yet every word in the Bible is in the dictionary, so why worry? But you see, that's different, isn't it? So it's a living thing. And if we had all the time there is, all we would have to do would start reading Genesis 1 and go solidly ploughing through till we get to the end of Revelation 22 and then we shall be able to say, this God is our God. Maybe we shouldn't know all about it, friends. So we see, keep in prayer, will you? Because this is a subject in which we can make such tremendous mistakes because of the intrusion of the ordinary thinking and philosophy and wisdom of man. You will remember that it says in the epistle to the Corinthians, not man by his foolishness didn't find out God, but the world by its wisdom knew not God. The more they argued, the more they debated, the further God was, as it were, pushed from them. You and I are entering into God's holiest of all when we begin to speak about God. And there is no possibility of searching and finding him. The only thing we can do is to search what he has told us about himself. And when he stops, we stop. But if we've got all that he's told us about himself, we shan't stop before we are filled to the brim. For he knows our capacity. And he has focused our attention upon the person of Christ. Not merely grammatical students. Not merely those who know how to use a concordance but those who see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, that's our preface, and that's my excuse for taking the line I'd to take this evening. I've just got a few words in front of me that I would like to read. I don't read very many, but this is an excuse not to be thinking too rapidly for myself this evening. If a finite creature could, in the full sense of the word, really know God, then God would cease to be infinite and not the God of Scripture. By the way, I'm reading what I've written myself, friends. I'm not taking it from somebody else. Although it may be better said by somebody else, for all I know. All knowledge of God, however received, whether through the light, dim light of nature, the brighter light of Scripture, or in the person of Christ, must be relative and conditioned. God is beyond the limitations of time and space and sense. If you could say God was somewhere at some time and you could touch him, he would cease to be the God of the Bible. But we cannot understand God, who is unconditioned and absolute, and so God stoops and uses human figures. It speaks about his nostrils. It speaks about his eyelids. But surely nobody in these senses would say, well, that's a proof that God has them. That is stooping down and using human terms to bring as near as it's humanly possible the infinite into the realm of the finite. We cannot know God at all unless he reveals himself and unless in that revelation he condescends to our low estate and speaks in human terms. So far as the nature and attributes of God are concerned, we must remember that the whole of language is symbolic and that in every utterance concerning himself, the revelation is limited by the necessity of using human forms of thought. We may remind ourselves of the question of Zophar in the book of Job. Canst thou by searching find out God? 
Canst thou find out thy Almighty unto perfection? The answer in both questions must be negative. We are shut up to revelation, and know nothing, absolutely nothing, apart from that source. And what we do know, however penetrating our perceptions, or large our faith, will never find out the Almighty unto perfection. We shall still only know in part. At the threshold of our study, we have to face the fact that the Scriptures do not set out to prove the existence of God. This fact is assumed in the opening verse of Genesis. In the beginning God created. And in every mention of God to the last chapter of the Revelation this is so. Human logic and the human mind are inadequate to deal with this problem. And if we attempt it within the limits of human philosophy, we may soon find ourselves driven to atheism. You say, how? Well, within the limits of our own experience and the universal experience that underlies all human knowledge and thought, it is true that that which never had a beginning cannot now exist. Will anyone find fault with that? I'll say it again. That which never had a beginning cannot exist now. But if we attempt to apply this kind of reasoning to the question of the existence of God, where will it lead us? The world by wisdom knew not God. The works of creation testify of their maker, but their testimony is limited. That which may be known of God, that which may be known of God is manifest in them. But that which may be known of God by the works of his hands is small when compared with the revelation of his word. Instead thereof attempting the impossible, he that cometh to God must believe that he is. That he is lies outside the scope of revelation to discuss or to prove. What he is is its theme, but not that he is. If you want the proof that God is outside the Bible for friends, you ought to go somewhere else. Because I'm just as ignorant as you are, excuse me. But all I can tell you is that the Bible tells us not that he is, that's assumed, from beginning to end, but what he is occupies its pages. What he is is its theme. But it is what he is related to creation and to man and to redemption not what he is absolutely in his own person, that, at the present time at least, we can neither know nor understand. Well, that is a little bit of a word for us, perhaps, to warn us that we now know in part. We see by means of a mirror enigmatically. But one day, it goes on to say, then shall we know, even as we are known. So, friends, we are in the infant school at the moment. One day is coming when it will be possible for God to, to tell us another stage. And even then, I dare say, there will be others in front of us. For the idea of exhausting the nature of God almost sounds like blasphemy if you utter it, doesn't it? Well now, what I want to do this evening is to take rather a simple line, but it's got to be done sometime or another, so that I thought, as I shouldn't be on my toes speaking figuratively understand, friends, um, this evening I would just ask you to bear with me if it's a little bit simple, a little bit laboured, and if I don't last out the full length of the time. I hope I shall. Sometime or another we ought to 
have at least the material before us, whether we understand the material or not. And of course the material will not so be attractive as when the building is up. Loads of bricks, heaps of stone, great girders, they don't look very prepossessing, but there comes a time when they're all put together and we may have a marvellous temple or a palace. Well, we're not going to have the temple or the palace, we're going to just look at the bricks and the stones and the things that are written in the scriptures that bear directly on this question of the being and nature of God. And within our limits this evening, I should have to deal only with the words that are used in the Bible, which we translate God. Now, I'm not going off into the question of the etymology of the English word God, because if we could find it, it wouldn't make a scrap of difference, because although we're a wonderful people, and we have contributed much to the understanding of literature in the world, God did not condescend to use English. In fact, would you believe it, English wasn't spoken when Adam was put in the Garden of Eden. As far as we know, by the way, the fact that Adam is a Hebrew word, and Eve is a Hebrew word, and Cain is a Hebrew word, and Abel is a Hebrew word, that right back in the beginning, the initial language that men spoke was the pure precursor of what we might call modern Hebrew. Another thing I would like to leave with you is this, that you can go very far astray if you start building doctrines on the etymology of Greek words. Now this may sound very strange to some ears. I'll tell you what I mean. The Greek was a language that was spoken hundreds of years before it was taken over by Christianity. And it was spoken by people who were pagans and idolaters and knew not God. Consequently, that language will be full of references to all sorts of ideas that are absolutely foreign to Scripture. And yet, the New Testament is written in Greek. Well, it's all right. Let me give you an illustration. Our Saviour himself and the Apostles used the Greek word which we translate interpret. The Greek verb is hermeneuo, and interpretation is hermeneutics. Well, nobody's going to be stumbled by that, but if we're going to build upon the meaning of the word, Hermes is the Greek name for the god Mercury. So if we're going to build a doctrine on it, we've got to turn this chapel into an idolatrous shrine and all pray to the god of Mercury to open the meaning of the Bible. Well, of course, that's nonsense, isn't it? So you see, Whatever theos means in the New Testament, that's the word for God. All it means to us, it's a New Testament way of saying the Old Testament word for God. And the Old Testament word for God is the original one. So if we've got any idea of the meaning of the original words that God used in the Hebrew, then when we come to the New Testament, it means the same there, whatever theos may come from. There's a possibility that theos is the parent of the word jazz. Do you realize that? We don't want to get too far in this direction, but when, when the Portuguese pronounced the Greek word theos, they spelled it with a D, dios. And then when they went to Africa and saw the natives dancing round the shrine of their god, they called it a jazz, jazz, D-E-I-O-S, D-I-O-S, and the jazz went across to America and it was pronounced jazz and it's come back again here now in our ballrooms. You see what you can do with words? Well, we leave those alone. Now then, the first verse of the Bible contains the first occurrence of the name God. In the beginning, God created. Now, 
here's a problem that Moses had to face. He was leading a people out of Egypt, and for a couple of hundred years, they and their forefathers had been surrounded by idolatry. And if he could have avoided using a plural word for God, he would have done so, for he was a wise man. But he couldn't. The moment you start reading the Bible, you're up against a problem. Because Moses, who knew, who knew grammar and writes grammatically, is obliged to make a grammatical difference. Because, you see, in the ordinary way, a singular noun takes a singular verb, and a plural noun takes a plural verb. Couldn't do it. Elohim, the word God is plural, but it's followed by a singular verb. So we're outside once more the realm of the limitations that man would impose upon it. We're dealing with someone and something that cannot be confined to what we reckon is right, accurate and true. Elohim. Now this word is associated particularly with God who is an object of worship. There are three words, four words, Elohim, Eloah, Elah, and El, but you can see they all start with E-L. And as far as we know, it's very conjectural, as far as we know that the root E-L goes back to the thought of invincible, almighty power. But this invincible, almighty power can be conceived of as having different effects in different circumstances. Now, in Genesis, the third chapter, when the serpent uses the word Elohim, he said to our first parents, ye shall be as gods, with an S on the end of it. But exactly the same word as Genesis 1, verse 1. Nobody would, of course, translate it, in the beginning, gods created heaven and earth. But don't you see, the same word Elohim can be used of idols. Because the one covering thought, whether you're dealing with the true God or the false, is that either of them are an object of worship. When you come to the New Testament, you read confessedly, great is the mystery of godliness. I wonder why. Why that word was chosen. When many others might have been chosen in connection with the fact that God was manifest in the flesh in the person of his Son. But don't you see, worship lies at the root of most error and has to be brought back before we could be in right line with God. Idolatry is a usurpation of the peculiar place that Christ occupies. It is very right, now don't misunderstand me again, it's very right that we should have an image when we worship God, but not one made by hand. If you shut your eyes and think of God, just like that, you won't think of him at all. You'll be very much like my second daughter, who, when she was a child, she said she thought her soul was like grey tulle. I don't know whether you ladies have ever handled stuff called tulle, but it was a sort of a fluffy material. Well, I think a good many people's idea of God would be a fluffy material. But we have the person of Christ between us and the invisible, unconditioned absolute, infinite God. So when we shut our eyes, it's not a bit of grey tool. It's the glory of God in a human face. And so it should be. But all idolatry usurps 
the image of God and puts an image made by man in its place. So that if you look at the usage of this word, Elohim, it's used of God, Genesis 1 verse 1. It's used of God's, Genesis 3 verse 5. And another example, it's used of the gods of Egypt, Exodus 12, 12. So, what links them all together, whether it's the true God or the false, is of an object of worship. And the same thought is expressed in 2 Thessalonians when it speaks about the man of sin, the son of perdition, who sits in the temple of God, above all that is called God or worshipped. You see? All that is called God or worshipped seems to include the idea that God is an object of reverence by reason of his very nature and of his work. And then this word is also used of those who are rulers and judges. You remember our Lord quoted the psalm and said, it is written in the scriptures, I said, ye are gods, but you shall die like a man. Who are these that are spoken of as gods? Elohim, or the judges of the people. And to this very day, in the English language, we retain the word worship of the infinite God, or we speak of the worshipful company of fishmongers, or in the magistrate's court, you say your worship. Not that we're bowing down and worshipping in the wrong sense, but, you see, any reference to this use of the word as a ruler, as a judge, as a king, as a creator, or gather it all up as God an object of worship. It bears upon the person of Christ because he accepted worship. Whereas his followers have said, oh, do it not, worship God. Now, you see, that puts you in a predicament. Were his, were his followers more concerned with the nature and being of God than Christ himself? Or was it right that he should accept worship and they not? Now, he wasn't the false God. So, the first epistle of John says that we may know him. This is the true God. This one. And eternal life. This one. But that's another sub subject and we come up before us another time. I move, because of our time, to another word, just the two letters, E-L. You see, Elohim is an expansion of it. Just the letters E-L. And I'll give you one example where this is not used of God, but of man. In Ezekiel 31, 11. It gives you just a little idea of its meaning. Ezekiel 31, 11. It's speaking about the glory and the fall of Assyria. About the Assyrian was like a, Leban, a cedar of Lebanon in verse 3. But now in verse 11. I have therefore delivered him into the hand of the mighty one of the heathen. And that apparently refers, as far as we know, to Nebuchadnezzar. Or some great ruler of that time. That is the word, mighty one, which is the word El. Often used as the word meaning God. So you see, the basic word in the Hebrew is just the two letters, E-L. Uh, but the emphasis in the one is worship because of his creative work particularly 
and the other is mighty power and rule which is recognised even when it's used to man. Now there's another spelling of the same word, E-L-A-H, we put it in English, and that is used mainly by Ezra and Nehemiah and Daniel. But they were all under the dominion of Persian kings. And they used a word then that would be more understood in the days of Persian dominion than it was in the days of Abraham. The same thing, you see. The little endings on the end often indicate changes in history. E-N-A-H. Now I'd like you to look at Jeremiah 10.11 because there's a peculiar reason for this. Jeremiah 10.11. Remember that Jeremiah was a prophet to Israel and the whole of Jeremiah's prophecy is written naturally in Hebrew with one exception. In chapter 10 verse 11 if you're a student of the original you're suddenly conscious that you're reading rather peculiar Hebrew. And the answer is that this one verse is the exception. That for some reason or another, Jeremiah stopped writing Hebrew and wrote the parallel language, Chaldee. Why? This is what he's going to say. Thus shall ye say unto them, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, even they shall perish from the earth and for under the heavens. These heavens. And it goes back again to its Hebrew again. Just one single witness to the heathen outside. There we got the word coming there. I'm going to leave the word Elohim and Eloher and El, there's so much, and come to the next that we find in the book of Genesis. If you read right through Genesis 1, you find the word God repeated over and over and over again, right into chapter 2 until the heavens and the earth are finished. And then comes a change. Chapter 2 goes on and chapter 3 and chapter 4 onwards, it's the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God. The addition of the name Jehovah to the word Elohim. And one of the reasons seems to be this. That when you're dealing with creation only, it's God. But when you're coming into relationship with man, it's the Lord God. We're now coming nearer to the day when redemption was accomplished and Christ came. The Lord God. Now if you will notice... For instance, Psalm 19. This is observed, this sort of uh, difference is observed in the use of the titles of God in Psalm 19. You know how Psalm 19 commences? The heavens declare the glory of God. But when you get to the law and the statutes and the fear, when you're dealing with God in relation to men, not merely creating heaven and earth, but writing the tables of stone and giving the law to his people. It's not God. It changes. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The statutes of the Lord are right. Then you get an example of the change of title in one psalm. You see, there are those who were critics. They picked out all the verses in the book of Genesis which said God, and said one man wrote that. Then they picked out all the others which said the Lord God said another man wrote that. And then they found two or three others who mixed it up worse more, so we got about five or six writers of the book of Genesis, 
And now here's a play on words, friends. I'll leave it with you without explanation. They proved the mosaic. I'll stop for a minute. They proved the mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. Now, if you can't see that, don't worry. But you see, we've got it. The creation in the first half of Psalm 19, dealing with man as a responsible moral creature, the God and the Lord. If you do just look at Genesis 7, 16, for just the one little indication that this may also have been recognised there. Genesis 16. This is speaking about the days of the flood. Verse 15 says, And they went in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh. Now look, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. I wonder why the change there. God commanded and all creation is involved. Specimens of them. And then when the act of redemption and the thought of preservation and the closing of the door against the dead that was coming, it was not God shut the door. The Lord shut him in. And you'll find other passages where there's this interchange. Well now, time is going and I want just to get to another aspect. This title, these titles of God. If you turn to Genesis 17, you have the first occurrence of a title which runs through the scriptures afterwards many times. Genesis 17. And when Abraham was 90 years old and nine, now there's a reason for that, because even Abraham, living as he did in the early days, had reached an age when it was physically not likely that he would become the father of a child. And we're told that Sarah was just in the same condition, and there they were. So when Abraham had reached that point, when he was 19 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. And then Abraham fell on his face. God said, I will multiply thee exceedingly. I will bring great nations out of thee. I will give to thy seed this land. You know, it says further down in verse 17 concerning Sarah, Abraham fell upon his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? Do you know why he called his son Isaac Prince? Do you? Because if you knew Hebrew, you know he was calling him, Let him laugh! That's the meaning of the word Isaac. Oh, Abraham had a good old laugh over this. A laugh of joy. And do you remember Sarah? When she heard the angels giving her promise, she laughed, but she laughed because she didn't believe it. And when the angel said to her, Sarah, I, I almost feel inclined to try and make it like this, Sarah, you giggled. Oh, she says, I didn't. Oh, he said, you did. But at the time of life, he will come. You see, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. 
The word is translated in the Greek version, this word, by the word ikanos and its derivatives, which means sufficient. When the apostle said, not that we have any sufficiency of ourselves, but our sufficiency as a God. That's the word in the New Testament that we find embedded in El Shaddai. The God who is all sufficient for all circumstances to be all demands. So Abraham was all right. Although he was 99 and his wife was the same as he was, he said we're standing in the presence of God who is all sufficient. And it's retranslated again in the New Testament. Before him who quickeneth the dead. That's, that's the one before whom Abraham stood. And you need an all-sufficient God for that. That is almighty power with a vengeance. And then when you read in Colossians chapter 1, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. That's the same word, to make us meet, to make us all-sufficient for all the claims that ever could be made upon us when we reach the glory. And we don't know what those claims are, but he does, and they're all met. El Shaddai. Elsewhere, we find this word in the New Testament. They took security of Jason in Acts 17. They took security of him. Our God, he gives security. He doesn't take it from us. And then we have it over and over again, like John the Baptist said, I'm not worthy to loose the latchet of his shoes. Worthy. All these words are an attempt on the part of the translators to say what a fullness there is here. A God who is absolutely trustworthy, all-sufficient, never taken by surprise, sees the end from the beginning, has all power, all wisdom, all grace, all love. Well then, having said so far, we come to the New Testament. Now one or two Summaries is all we can hope to do this evening. Most of the definitions of God, if you read theological works, and they can't help themselves, I'm not poking fun, I have to do the same, they have to do the same. Nearly all the definitions of God start with the two letters I-M or I-N. Now they don't represent the preposition in, they represent the word that means not. Immobile means it doesn't move. Immortal means it's not dead, or in a condition of death. Invisible means you can't see it, it's all negative. You could get a whole list, you could fill yards of paper with the definition of God that all starts with what he's not. And when you add it up, you don't know anything. You've only said what he isn't. You only see what he is when you know Christ. So that he could say to his disciples, have I been so long time with you and hasn't dawned on you yet? He that has seen me hath seen the Father. I've got here, there's God is said to be invisible. He's said to be immortal. He's said to be incorruptible. Now these are called essential negations. See, the essential has to do with his essence. He's invisible. And these other three are called functional. That is to say, something that he does, not really that he is. Immutable. As to counsel. 
incapable of lying and incapable of denying himself. Well, that's only six, and so you can go on, you know, infinite. Now, let's notice a few of the ways in which God is introduced to us in the New Testament. The living and true God. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 But if you'll notice, that's in contrast with idols. I think we ought to see this for ourselves. I shall be in the New Testament now for the rest of the time. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here the apostle is writing and he says, verse 9, They themselves show of us what manner of entry did we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. All idols are dead and false gods. He is the living and true God. There come a time when we shall have to ponder this true God a little further, because Many times it doesn't mean the opposite of false, it means the opposite of the type. See, our Saviour didn't deny that the manna was given in the wilderness, but he said, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and the dead. I am the true bread. That wasn't false, it was only typical. Idols are typical, as well as false. They're just images made by man. Not that God will countenance them. So we deal, friends, we deal with a living and a true God. Let's take another one of these, because they add up, you see, if we get an accumulation of them. Not only so, but in 1 Timothy 4, and 1, yes, 1 Timothy 4 and 1 Timothy 6, the Apostle uses just the simpler terms, the living God. I think we'll look at those in their context. 1 Timothy 4.10 he says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. For therefore we both labour and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the saviour of all men, especially of those that believe. And then, in chapter 6, he speaks of the living God again. Verse 17. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches but in the living God the object of your trust, the uncertainty of the one, the absolute certainty of the other. Then if you look at 1 Timothy 1.17, you'll find another reference. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. Now I think you'll find that the revised version leave out the word wise and read the only God. We note that in the corresponding passage in 1 Timothy 6, 15 to 16, the words are the blessed and only potentate and who only hath immortality. Only. There's a marvellous, overwhelming feeling of separateness, isn't there? He's the only one. He says, I know no other. There is none else. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. The only God. If you like to keep the word the only wise God, perfectly true. He's many other things as well as the only wise God, but the stress is the only one. 
as though you come to the point that Peter came to. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we can say, and thou only. Yes. And then we have in 1 Timothy 1, isn't that convenient for you lazy people who won't turn to the scriptures? 1 Timothy 1.11 is another one in um, this reference. Oh, I must be getting better, I think, friends. Uh, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. He's called the blessed and only potentate. But here we have, I think our brother Stuart Allen was using this subject in one of his meetings while I've been away, differentiating between two words. I'll have to give them to you again. Here in these references in 1 Timothy, the word is makarion, which some derive from two words, mekeri, not subject to fate. This word blessed or happy is one who is never dogged about by any shadow, no chip on his shoulder, never any state of dominion, someone having dominion over him, not subject to fate. That's the, that's the word here, the blessed God. The other word blessed, eulogio, of course, is our word eulogism, to speak well of a person. And of course, so many times it's been debased when at the end of a dinner with plenty to drink, the toast is given and they call for a speech and the man stands up and says he should give a wonderful eulogy about somebody, well that's the debasing of the word. But this means to speak well of. The glorious epistle that we revel in starts with, Blessed be God who hath blessed us. And you could paraphrase it, Oh friend, speak well of God, for in Christ he's spoken well of you. Two words. And then we have Others, facts. He is faithful. He is true. He cannot deny himself. And he's called these other titles in the New Testament. The God of peace. And strangely enough, in Romans 16, the God of peace shall bruise Satan. Fancy the God of peace doing the bruising. That's because it's a legitimate and a righteous conflict. The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. He's called the God of hope. He's called the God of patience and consolation. He's called the God of all comfort. And so we can go on. If you ever noticed in one epistle, the epistle to the Romans, the things that are of God, I'll just give them to you and hope that I don't go running beyond my time. Because this is theology. Not in the academic sense, but if you know all the things that are of God, you know a good deal about God, don't you? Well, here they come. Romans, one epistle only. The gospel of God. The will of God. The power of God. The righteousness of God. The wrath of God, the glory of God, and the truth of God, all in one chapter. You think of ratifying and going along the avenues that each one of those words will take you. 
He is covering the whole redemption of the need of man and the nature of sin and the gift of Christ and his gospel, you see. Then we come to chapter 2. The goodness of God and the judgment of God and the name of God. The name of God meaning something, not merely a cipher. That's chapter 2, Romans. Then chapter 3. The oracles of God. The great gift to Israel. And the faith of God. And in chapter 5, the love of God. And the grace of God. And later on, the goodness and severity of God. And the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And the mercies of God. And the kingdom of Christ and of God. That's all in one epistle. Practically. I've run over one, only one passage outside. All in one epistle. The things that are of God. So that now, I've given you just an introduction. As I said, I would take an easy line this night because I may not be able to keep going as I wished. And if it's been dull and uninteresting, I've given you a start. And I tell you now, that all you need to do to know all there is to know about God is to patiently read the whole Bible from beginning to end and note all the things that it says about God and you'll know all that it's possible in this life to attain. Of course you might say thank you for nothing. But I remember sitting down once in the open air doing a watercolour sketch and somebody was asking me how to do it and I said, well, it's simple. All you've got to do is to put the right colour on the right place, and the thing's done. I said, oh, that's what, oh, that's well, there it is, friends. There are some folks who are very keen about inspiration, but they rather shirk the perspiration. And there's no possibility of the one without the other. All that we can do in these meetings is not to do it for you. We can point the way, and we only hope that you've seen enough this evening to be able to say, oh, I wish in a more intelligent way than I've ever thought before, that I could look at this Bible and say, this God is our God. And if you can, what a blessed people we should be.